Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I thought I was following my heart, but what I was really doing was following my ego. You're going to be wealthy. People are going to look up to you. It was all externally focused. Becoming a meditation teacher was really just about helping people. If the intention is pure and authentic, and that's backed by an internal feeling that's nudging you or pulling you in a certain direction, that's usually how you know you're following your heart. You may not even have the language for it, but you know that feeling. When I moved from New York to Los Angeles, there was a feeling. When I did my first nomadic journey and took a leap of faith and got a one-way ticket to Paris, there was a feeling you have to be out of your mind and into your heart, into your heart. That's Light Watkins, and this is episode 163 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Hello, my friends. I hope you're doing well. It's great to be back here with you for another episode. If this is your first time tuning in, thanks for joining us. I'm Simon Hill, your host, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Today, we hear from my friend, Light Watkins, meditation teacher, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and really just an all-round beautiful human. In this conversation, we talk about living the nomadic life, what that's like, his new book, Knowing Where to Look, meditation, the still small voice, and much more. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. This is Light Watkins. Light Watkins, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. I'm so honored to be here. I was mentioning to you earlier that I, I find your show to be one of the best ones out there. So I'm especially grateful that you invited me on. Thank you very much. That means a, a lot to me. Uh, I've really, really been enjoying your new book. It's unbelievable. Certainly left me feeling very inspired everywhere that I looked. So I'm excited to unpack it with you. How's everything going at your end? Give me the latest in in the world of Light Watkins. So as I mentioned in the very beginning of the book, Knowing Where to Look, I started nomading in 2018. I started living from a carry-on bag. Well, around 2020, I downsized to a backpack and I'm currently in Mexico City, I'm living month to month in an Airbnb from my backpack. So I still have my capsule wardrobe and still doing all my writing. I'm actually working on my next book and still facilitating meditation stuff and just doing all the things, man, staying a productive citizen of the of the spiritual world. I heard you talking about shedding with Rich Roll, who's a mutual friend of ours, and that was a fantastic exchange. And it got me thinking about you and I because there's this this whole two degrees of separation thing going on, but there's more to it. And, and I want to kind of try and piece this together with you. Early in the book, you talk about the nomadic life 
And you talk about being inspired by a friend in 2018. Yes. I'm, I'm curious who that friend was. It was our mutual friend. <laughs> yeah, and that was Will. I actually have a dedication to Will in the book. Yeah, so that then got me thinking. And and Will Dalton's been on this show. He was he was on an episode. Yeah, episode fifty. So the listeners will uh, okay. they'll remember that. And you know, sadly, he passed away uh, last year. Where this gets even more interesting is so you and Rich were talking about the inspiration behind shedding and and transitioning to this more nomadic life. And you had been inspired by Will Dalton. Now, Rich was in Bondi early 2020. And of course, of course, Rich being Rich, he spent a lot of time at icebergs swimming and and a lot of time in the sauna. And I think you know where this is, is going, but that's also where Will Dalton spent a lot of time. And so I don't think Rich even knows to this day, but he actually had a conversation with Will in the sauna about the nomadic life because Will had just bought his new van. Did he? Right. A sprinter van. Yeah. So. Oh, wow. And, and the only reason I know that is because after uh, Will bumped into Rich in the sauna, he sent me a text saying, oh, I just saw Rich and uh, we were chatting about life. And, you know, I can only assume that it was talking about Will's love for, for being rather nomadic and mm. and constantly jumping from from country to country so i just thought it was quite it, it, it's it's neat how there's this whole two degrees of of separation going on yeah man i mean will was such a big inspiration for many of those stories that i told in the book the one about uh learning meeting my meditation teacher tom knowles that was will dalton and yeah there were a few others i don't remember off the top of my head but he definitely has a huge presence of, uh, of a lot of my my most recent life in the last ten or twelve years. So this idea of of shedding and you know living free or freer is, I think, something that a lot of people grapple with, and you can kind of romanticize it, you can fantasize about it, but it's one thing to do that, and then the other is to act on that. I'm curious as to how long you had thought about doing this and then what was it that really inspired you to sort of take that leap and, and completely change the way that you were living? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say I was thinking about doing it for maybe a couple of years before I finally pulled the trigger on it. And what initiated the actual move was I was in the process of writing my previous book, which was called Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying. And so I, I needed some stability to write that book, I thought. And at the same time, I was feeling increasingly more and more disconnected from my apartment in Venice, California. And I just gotten out of a relationship. So, you know, when you get out of a, it was a very meaningful relationship for me. It's usually a reflective time, a time of maybe some sort of transition. I know a lot of times women will like cut their hair or, you know, somebody will do something very drastic. And so for me, because I had associated my apartment with that relationship so much, I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons that I felt a little disconnected from it now that I think about it. And at the same time, my book was just about to come out or it just come out and I was about to go on the road 
to promote it. I agreed to a bunch of uh, Wanderlust events. I think it was like 15 Wanderlust events over 2018. So I thought, you know, I'll be on the road anyway. I'm already on the road teaching meditation. This will be a great opportunity to to finally do this, do this thing. Because I'd already been experimenting with traveling with just a carry-on bag and seeing which which clothes often made the rotation and which didn't. And then I noticed that I was only wearing like just, you know, a dozen pieces. And, and so it was kind of the final test in the simulation that had been occurring over the previous couple of years to just pull the trigger. And once I gave my landlord the notice, that's where everything became real. I gave him 30 days notice. And then I just started getting really focused on, on getting rid of everything. And I was successful in doing that within 30 days. And what's interesting about that is that I ended up moving out of my two-bedroom apartment, which was a nice size apartment, getting rid of 40 years worth of stuff. And I literally only had one trash bag, like I had one little bag of trash. And I'd given everything else away. That was my challenge to myself, was try not to be so wasteful and throw away a bunch of stuff. You know, I tried to sell what I could, but things that I didn't sell, I just made some ads on Craigslist. And, uh, and and people came by and they just picked stuff up. And I, it was down to like my Vaseline jar, my toothbrush holder. I would clean those things really well <laughs> and, uh, and and present them really nicely. And people would come by and just take them. So what about fear and, and being scared of the changes that were to come? Did you have some some sort of trepidation about shedding all of this stuff and living with much less things, physical things, tangible things that you had accumulated? You know, I, honestly, I didn't. And that's for a couple of reasons. The first reason is I was, I was doing fairly well for myself with my teaching, with my retreats, with my books and stuff like that. So I knew that if I needed something that I didn't foresee, I could easily sort that out. But more importantly... You know, I've been meditating for 20 years like clockwork every day. And I have to admit that that played a role in in the willingness to take the leap of faith and not, and it was a leap of faith in that it got me out of the conventional model of living. But I wouldn't say that I was afraid of much in the process of doing it. I tell you, the moment when the fear is most present is right before you you really decide to do it, right before you take the leap. Once I handed in my notice, the fear went away and everything became strategic. And it was just like, how do I, how do I do this in a way that feels seamless, that feels like I'm, I'm in the flow? And I had done this a couple of other times in my life. So I kind of, I've had some really remarkable experiences. In fact, I told another story when I opened the book, knowing where to look about the first time I went nomadic and how serendipitous everything worked out. So I, I, I've done that several times. And I used to talk to Will Dalton about that a lot. We used to share those stories. And so it wasn't a question of if it's going to work out, it's how, how is it going to work out and what kind of interesting things are going to happen in the process. There's a theme throughout the book around following your heart. And it seems that that is very much a, a theme of your life to date. There are many stories in there. And you talk of meditation. One of the times that theme comes up is when you tell the story of the leap that you took to participate in the teaching, the meditation training. 
And at the time, many people may have looked at the decision and thought that was reckless or irresponsible with the decision you made from a a purely a a financial sort of economical lens. Can you you share that? Yeah, so that was a moment uh, when I was a full-time yoga teacher and I was trying to uh, become a meditation teacher. And this is like 2005. So this is way back before anybody was talking about making a career out of teaching meditation. I knew my meditation teacher, but I didn't know anyone else who taught meditation. And so he and Will Dalton organized these meditation teacher trainings over in India, or starting in India and then moving over to uh, Arizona. And the training costs, I think it was like $14,000 or something like that. And I was a full-time yoga teacher, right? I was making, you know, $800, $900 in a good week. But I had been invested in this foreign exchange company, which turned out to be a Ponzi scheme, like a legitimate Ponzi scheme, uh, which sounds like an oxymoron because a Ponzi scheme is an illegitimate (laughs) company, but it was an actual Ponzi. It was before the Bernie Madoff thing uh, was exposed. These guys were basically taking investors' money. And if someone wanted money out, they would pay the money out with other people's money. But they weren't they weren't actually trading any currencies or anything like that. And so I was highly leveraged in that. And it had been going on for a few years. And I used some of that money to purchase some property, to put a down payment on some property, some income property in Los Angeles, which in hindsight ended up was a bad deal, but I didn't know any better because I had never been in real estate before. But I was just trying to flip property. So I was a bit greedy at the time, if I'm being perfectly honest. Anyway, long story short, the Ponzi scheme was exposed. The real estate market crashed. The house of cards was falling down. And I wanted to go to do this teacher training. And so from a financial standpoint, it was not ideal to pay anybody $14,000 to run off to India and and do this very sort of woo-woo, you know, meditation thing when I needed to be clawing my way out of debt and rebuilding my credit and doing all those, all those very responsible financial things. But because I bought that property, I started getting an influx of cash advance offers in the mail. One came literally like two days or maybe the day before uh, the tuition was due because I was like preparing to go, even though I hadn't paid the tuition, but I knew that something was going to happen. I just trusted that something was going to happen. And sure enough, I get this thing in the mail and it says, you know, $14,000 in cash. You, You have 18 months or 12 months or something like that before you have to pay it back. And then of course, it's going to be this exorbitant interest rate after that period. But I was very confident that if I could get myself over to India, learn to be a teacher and come back after three months, I could start making money teaching meditation. So I didn't even really think twice about it. I felt like that was a godsend. That was the universe telling me, okay, this is how you're going to pay your tuition. So I deposited the money into my account, used it to pay the tuition. And, uh, and everything kind of worked out like I had anticipated. I went away for a few months, came back. I was able to pay it off after a month of teaching meditation because there weren't any meditation teachers in town. There was like a couple of us who had been away training and I was just so passionate about it. And so the point of that story in the book was that if I had listened to the financial gurus of the time and just people who were smart, you know, I probably would not have 
uh, taken that cash advance and I would have a story about how I almost was gullible enough to put myself in a very tricky financial position, but I was smart enough to not do it and, you know, and, and to mind my finances and to, you know, just do the responsible thing. But instead, I have a story where I took a leap of faith and I was able to learn something that could help people. And I've been able to help thousands of people since then. And I've been able to write books and I've been able to, you know, do retreats and, and start a podcast and do all the things that I'm doing now because I took that one leap of faith. And, and that's the value of the leap of faith. And the principle that I present to the reader is that maybe money is not the source of opportunities. Maybe opportunities of the heart are the source of money. And if you say yes to those opportunities of the heart, the money that you need will come usually in the most unexpected ways. And if you follow through on that, all the other things that you need such as, you know, I need to make sure I'm not going in debt. I need to make sure I'm not ris- abandoning my family. All of the things that you need for those areas in your life to be responsible, they're going to come. You're not going to be able to see them, though, until you take the leap of faith. So that was my experience. And again, I've had that experience several times in different situations. And that was just another situation that affirmed my feeling that I had to follow through on that internal guidance. And that's what I encourage everybody through these stories to do in that book. It seems like you are very intuitive and you follow your heart. Is there a difference between a kind of blind leap of faith and a calculated leap of faith, do you feel? Well, I think everybody has uh, access to their intuition if they cultivate it. And that's what I, that's why I was saying earlier, we can't discount the meditation part. Like I've been meditating for five years up to that point. Now I'd taken leaps of faith before then, but I didn't have language for what I was doing. I was just kind of, as people say, I was, I was listening to my gut. But after I've been practicing and studying with my teacher, we obviously, he obviously talked a lot about the fact that everything is connected and explaining all of the spiritual principles. But one thing he used to say was, it's not enough just to understand this stuff intellectually. He said, you have to embody it. You have to experience it directly, right? In a way that you don't need me to tell you that this is, that everything's connected. You can feel that everything is connected. And so once you get to that point, once you cross that threshold where it's no longer just an intellectual concept, because this was my experience, and it's a feeling tone, then it's undeniable. And when you have that feeling, and obviously, you know, you're going to split test it and try out other, like when I got into real estate, I thought I was following my heart, but what I was really doing was following my ego because my ego was saying, you're going to be wealthy. You know, people are going to look up to you. It was all externally focused. That's what I deduced in hindsight. But becoming a meditation teacher was really just about helping people. And so if, if the intention is pure and authentic, and, and that's backed by an internal feeling that's nudging you or pulling you in a certain direction, that's usually how you know that you're following your heart. So can it be calculated? I guess, you know, depending on how people define calculated, I guess it could feel calculated, but Once you've had the feeling enough times, you may not even have the language for it, but you you, you know that feeling. 
you know that feeling. Like when I moved from New York to Los Angeles, there was a feeling. And when I did my first nomadic journey and, and, and took a leap of faith and took, got a one-way ticket to Paris from Chicago, there was a feeling. Like it was no doubt that I was supposed to do that. And if anything, the calculation comes in talking you out of it. Like, this is why you shouldn't do it. These are the 20 reasons why you shouldn't do it, why it's stupid. You're going to look ridiculous. This is, you know, going to put you in a a weaker financial position. And it's easy to list all those reasons out. But then in the pro column, usually the only reason left is my heart is there's a feeling telling me to do it. It doesn't make any sense. And, you know, in a way, you kind of have to be out of your, people say you're out of your mind. You have to be out of your mind and into your heart to be able to take that sort of action. And so that's where the meditation and the self-awareness comes in that you just spoke of, that that seems to have very much helped you almost apply a bit of a filter to these thoughts and, and then act on those that feel right. If meditation didn't work out for you, it would be easy to say, you know, light, that was a, a poor decision. You put all your money on the line, all your chips on the table, and, and look what happened. You're now behind the eight ball. Perhaps there are people listening now who have given something a go in their life. They've taken that leap. They've sacrificed some time, money, energy, maybe even friendships, etc. And it didn't quite work out in the way that they thought it was going to work out anyway. And their sort of their confidence to then go and throw themselves into new things and to tap into that intuition can be rocked. How does one overcome that and continue to follow their heart, continue to say yes? And you say in your book, stay curious. So I would I would say that more often than not, it does not work out the way you think it's supposed to work out. And even when it looks like it's going off the rails, you're still right where you need to be. So the image I would use to explain this is the GPS, right? GPS maps out the quickest direction to your destination. But if you miss the turn, it doesn't stop working. It just reroutes it, right? So for me, like for instance, when I invested in real estate, trying to flip properties, that would have been red flagged in terms of following my heart. I wasn't really following my heart there, but because I did that, I got that cash advance offer. I wouldn't have gotten the cash advance offer if I hadn't been invested in the in the properties because that was the link between those things coming and this other thing that I was doing. And I wouldn't have been able to do that had I not been invested in the fraudulent, the Ponzi scheme. So I have to admit that all of those things played a role. It turned out to be a much better story than just yeah, my parents gave me some money and I used it to go to teacher training. <laughs> it's much more interesting, you know, when I'm telling the story now and teaching using these stories that I was in these very hairy, sticky situations, but I kept the faith. And that's what's important. That's what I would tell people. Don't lose the faith, no matter what happens. It's always placing you in a position to have some opportunity that you would not have been able to see if you didn't keep the faith. So keep the faith. Keeping the faith allows you to be able to see those opportunities, to recalibrate your internal barometer. Because all that's all we're doing is, is we're split testing what's my legitimate voice and what's the fake voice. Because there's a thousand voices inside, right? There's the pain voice. There's the voice of social conditioning. There's the voice of financial gurus. There's the voice of your parents imposing their values onto you. So all those voices are sort of competing with each other. 
it's kind of like the Olympics. They're all shouting, shouting, shouting. You're on the track, you know, and then you have your still small voice, which is usually up in the nosebleeds. And that voice is, is still and small because it doesn't get a lot of validation. We don't usually follow that voice. So every time we have the courage to follow that voice, it gets louder and louder. And eventually it comes down from the nosebleeds to the floor seats. And then that's what we can look to and hear the clearest to get the cue of what to do next. And that's a process, right? You can't shortcut that process. You literally have to follow that voice a thousand times in little moments in order to turn the volume up louder and louder and louder. And, and meditation obviously helps a lot with that, but all, all inner work helps with that. Gratitude helps with it. Therapy helps with it. You know, being in nature helps with it and yoga and, and exercise and anything you're doing for yourself that brings you into a greater sense of balance will help you to hear and feel and sense that still small voice. When I was uh, 22 years old, I had just finished, or probably 23 actually, I did physiotherapy was my first degree. That was four-year degree and graduated, very high marks, got into a private practice, a sports medicine practice in Melbourne that didn't traditionally accept new grads. I was very lucky to get that role. And at the same time, I was working with the AFL professional footballers. Again, very lucky, these opportunities. But after about a year, it just didn't feel right. I wanted to travel. I'd gone straight from high school into these four years of intense study. I felt like I, I hadn't really seen the world. And, and so I had this appetite to completely you know, change the way I was doing things. And I wasn't doing meditation or yoga or anything at that time, but I had a housemate who he was, you know, spiritual and his guidance to me was pivotal in helping me muster up the courage to walk into that practice. And I remember I was, I was almost shaking in fear. I was, you know, I was very young and I felt the pressure that my parents and everyone around me knew how lucky I was to get this role. Uh, so to be quitting, quote unquote quitting, it made me very nervous. But looking back now, you know, I, I left that job and I went and did some travel and I did some business stuff that didn't work out. And people from the outside could have easily been looking and thinking, what's he gone and done? Uh, <laughs> and when I look back now, it was necessary. And, it, you know, it ultimately led to where I've ended up here today and, and us having this conversation. Yeah, man. And, and, and I don't know, you probably have had some smaller experiences as well. Like for instance, I remember, I know you guys down there, you guys have all are great swimmers. I was never a great swimmer. I grew up in landlocked Alabama in the South part of the United States. And the first time I saw the ocean, I was probably 14 or 15 years old, right? Up until then I'd swim in a couple swimming pools and maybe a lake or two. And I remember going and wading into the water and I'm pretty tall, I'm like six foot three. And so I'm wading out into the water with a friend of mine and we get to the point where I can barely touch the ocean floor. And so he starts, I think he was joking. He said, shark. And then he started swimming back in towards the shore. And I started trying to swim back in. But of course, if you don't know how to swim and you're in the ocean, you know, you 
there's nothing you, you can't, I'm, I'm moving my arms and my legs. Like I think a swimmer would move, but I'm not going anywhere. And it's the harder I swim, the further out I seem to be going. And I realized that I was in, in trouble. I was starting to panic. I was using all of my energy. And in the midst of all of that energy and panic and worry and doubt and fear, being afraid of some mammoth shark, you know, approaching me like a bullet, I heard this voice say, swim to the side. It was so clear. It said, swim to the side. And so I started swimming to the side. And then before I knew it, I was getting closer and closer to the shore. And then later on, this is, a, this, again, this is like the 1980s, early 90s. So there was no internet. There was no Google, nothing. I think I went to an encyclopedia and I found out that I was in a riptide. And the thing you do in a riptide is you, you swim to the side, right? There's no way I could have known that. And that was, that was a very, I never mentioned that to anybody because I don't think anyone would have really believed me, but I, it was undeniable that there was this, this voice and I didn't know what it was, where it was coming from or anything like that. But, but I credit that voice with, you know, saving my life that day. And I've heard that voice a couple of other times in, in really scary moments uh, in my life growing up. And so after I met my meditation teacher and, and we talked about the still small voice and, and the voice of intuition, like then everything kind of made sense. I was like, oh, that's what it is. So I think if anybody thinks back and does an inventory of those moments, because we've all had those moments where maybe, and maybe you ignored the voice, but the voice was still there telling you, leave the room right now, or don't get into that car or whatever. And if you ignored it and something uh, tragic happened, you still had the voice there who was looking after you. So I've just tried to really make a point of following that voice, because here's the other thing about the voice, the still small voice. It's not for the faint at heart because it's, it's nine times out of 10, it's going to tell you to do something that you don't know how it's going to turn out. It's usually the thing that you're not planning to do. And again, that's what it means to take the leap, right? Take the leap means both feet have to be in the air and you have to have momentum and then the net appears. So in a way, a calculated leap of faith or following your heart is a bit of a, an oxymoron. It doesn't really, doesn't really work like that. Now that I kind of articulated it for myself. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, the proof is in the plants is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. So the still small voice, that's what you call it. Can you explain that? And sounds like from what you're saying, that still small voice, you're going to become more aware of it through meditation. And more often than not, it's going to be challenging you potentially in some way. Yes. Meditation, in my experience, turns the volume up on the still small voice. So the still small voice is just another way of saying the voice of intuition. I, I believe still small voice is 
the language used by the Mormons, some group like that in Utah. I think they're the ones that actually called it the still small voice, but every wisdom tradition has a word for it. But intuition, your your intuition or your inner guidance, some people may call it your guardian angels, the universe. It's a directive that we can sort of tap into that will guide us along our path. Just keep it really simple like that. It'll guide us along our path. And again, I guess thinking of it like a GPS is for me one of the clearest illustrations because it reroutes, it always reroutes. So you can't go wrong. You can prolong the path, right? But you can't go wrong in the sense that it won't not reroute. So if you if you take a detour in your life, that's fine. You don't have to be shamed about that. And it's still going to reroute you to wherever your path happens to be. So if you pull the lens back, the whole thing was your path. It just wasn't the original path. <laughs> Maybe that was rooted out. So some of the, what you might call unnecessary turns, taking you the longer way, are in fact necessary. Yes, I would say the whole thing is necessary for your specific journey. You summed up meditation perfectly in the book when you mentioned real meditation versus uh, internet meditation. And for a long time, I grappled with meditation. I thought I was doing it wrong. I was not practicing correctly and getting the most out of it. I used to say to Will, actually, I can't do it. My back hurts. There's too much noise. I'm getting distracted. Can you talk to that, this, this idea of real meditation versus internet meditation? Yeah, so I, I painted out a contrast. You know, internet meditation is usually, when people disqualify themselves from thinking they can meditate, they're usually thinking of it in terms of what we see when we Google. If you, know, if you Google meditation and you look at the images, it's all people sitting in fields and on cliff sides and right at the ocean, and they have no shirt on usually if they're a guy. And if they're a woman, they're wearing some sort of, you know, Lululemon or yoga athletic wear. And they're usually white and they usually have a completely straight back and their fingers are together and their legs are perfectly crossed. And, and all, of, all of that is a caricaturization of meditation, right? And usually, meaning almost always, uh, those are models, And when they take those photos, those people aren't actually meditating. They're posing. They're posing in the way that the photographer tells them to sit. You know, can you can you um, bring your fingers together? Can you cross your legs? Can you do that thing that um, what is it called? The the lotus pose or whatever. Can you do that? Yes, I can do it. And how do I know? Because I've been the subject. I've been the model in those photos. Right. So neither the photographer nor the model may be an expert in meditation. They're just going on what they think meditation is supposed to look like for the stock photography market. And meanwhile, you know, I've been teaching meditation for 15 years now. And and, and so real meditation is what happens on your couch and in your living room and in your car before you go in to meet your friends at the bar. And it happens, you know, while you're wearing whatever you wore to work that day or, or, or while you're wearing your underwear and you're drooling on yourself and your kids may be somewhere in the background, you know, banging pots together and your neighbors watching television too loud. And, and that's how most 
meditation is done. And so when people understand that, then they don't disqualify themselves from thinking that they have what it takes or they're in an ideal environment for meditation because it's meant to be done sort of guerrilla style, you know, whenever and wherever you can do it. And that's the majority of the practices. So I just wanted to illustrate that for people so that they don't let themselves off the hook. Because again, I've seen how much value I get from the practice And I don't want to be one of those people who thinks the answers to all of life's problems are meditation. (laughs) Just like, you know, the answers to all of life's problems isn't sleep. But if you're not getting great sleep, it's certainly going to impact your digestive system, your reproduction system, and your decision-making abilities, and your immune system, and all the other things that we rely on to make the thousand decisions that we have to make every day. And as far as I know not a lot of people have a big margin for error, right? You can't make a lot of faulty choices on a day-to-day basis and expect to have a very comfortable life, which is what most people want. So if you truly want comfort, and I'm not talking about necessarily physical comfort, but just confidence and awareness to know that you're on your path, that's what real comfort is, is I know that I'm doing what I'm here to do. If you truly want that, then meditation or some sort of internal centering practice needs to be a part of your daily routine. Otherwise, you're just you're making it hard for yourself. You're making it hard for yourself. And so people think that those of us who spend the time to do that are kind of like, you know, we're soft or whatever. But I, I, <laughs> I think that uh, meditation makes you bold. And it actually is it's not meditating that makes you gullible and you let stress run the show essentially. And you create these bullshit stories that you tell yourself about why things aren't working out because you can't be honest with yourself in the way that you would be able to be honest with yourself if you were able to tap into that more authentic aspect of yourself and really look at yourself without judging yourself and without identifying too heavily with whatever you got going on externally. So that's why meditation makes you bold. It makes makes it really hard to put up with somebody else's BS. So you won't stay in a dead-end relationship. You won't stay in a dead-end job if you're meditating every single day. Unlike not meditating, in which case you think, okay, well, you know, keep the dead-end relationship and job and I'll just dilute my consciousness with, with alcohol or with marijuana or whatever on a regular basis so I don't have to feel the pain. So it's a very powerful thing. There's no one who meditates every day for 10 years and thinks, oh, that was a waste of time. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think you nailed it. I think when it comes to all of these things, be it sleep or meditation or nutrition, they're not going to be a silver bullet on their own, but they're all equally important tools. And in order to to master them, there is a, a level of time that needs to be invested into them. But as you said, it's about making life easier, not harder. I'm interested. I often hear from people who are meditating, perhaps they're new to meditating. And I know that you've taught what thousands of people probably across the world to meditate, all different types of people, I'm assuming from people in in Hollywood, actors, all the businessmen, businesswomen. Do you find that some people find it hard to translate 
the stillness and the peace that they get during the meditation to real life, to when they're in the, the, you know, the frantic business office scenario. And what's the key to sort of translating some of those benefits over to real life where you're not sitting by yourself in in a, a quiet, peaceful surrounding, but there's craziness around you? So I spent a whole day teaching people how to measure progress in meditation. And one of the things that I say on that day is, look, you can meditate all day and night, but you're not going to turn into Mother Teresa. You're not going to turn into Gandhi. You're not going to turn into Martin Luther King, right? What, what's going to happen is you're going to be a progressively better version of you, even if it's just a percent of a percent, right? And that's how you want to gauge progress. So if you have anger management problems, if you have a sex addiction, if you have whatever other problems are going on, meditation is not going to fix that after a month or two or five or a year or three years, right? But you will be able to look back in a year and see that your relationship to that problem or that addiction is starting to change and things are starting to break down. And, you know, maybe you're lucky. Maybe, maybe you know, I've, I've, I've seen people come off of cigarettes after a week of meditating. I've seen people come off of biting their nails and things like that. But the average person is not going to have those kinds of miraculous changes. And I try to do a good job of managing people's expectations in the gradual approach to the practice. And I say that the way you want to look at it is you want to keep your commitment higher than your expectations. If you can do that, then everything is going to work out. If your expectations get higher than your commitment to your daily practice, you're going to have problems, right? Which is fine. Come back and talk to me and I'll help you to readjust and recalibrate those, uh, those expectations so that you can, you can get them lower than your commitment again. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I really appreciated about my relationship with my teacher and, you know, the Vedic meditation approach in general is that it is an ongoing relationship with your teacher. So all of that is built in, like all the peaks and the valleys and the confusion is built into the process. Like we as teachers anticipate someone getting it backwards falling off the wagon, you know, because you're a normal person and you have other things going on than just meditation. You're not, you don't have the ability to dedicate and devote all of your time to this practice. That's what makes you a householder. If you are a monk, that's a different story, but we work with householders. So we expect you to get overwhelmed with your familial responsibilities or your work responsibilities from time to time and maybe, you know, lose track of your practice and then come back to it and and go away from it and come back to it and and all of that. But that's what you're talking about with the integration that actually helps people because you get to see the contrast between what life was like when I was relatively consistent versus what life is like when I'm not consistent at all. And there's usually a pretty stark difference. And when you, as a teacher, when you point that out, when you ask people, how did you feel when you weren't meditating after having meditated every day for three months? How did you feel just waking up and going out into the wild with no sort of outlet for stress? And people will, if they're being honest, will say, yeah, I didn't feel great. I didn't feel like myself. I want that 
thing back that I had when I first started practicing meditation with you. And so you give them a little refresher and get them back on the wagon. And then usually after going off of it two or three times, that's when it sticks. So I would say a third of the people who start have to go off of it and come back and go off and come back a few times in order for it to stick. It's a rare thing for people to learn right away and just stick, you know, do it consistently every day like clockwork forever and ever and ever. Even in my own experience, I was a very sometimesy sort of meditator once I started. But just having access to my teacher helped to inspire me to get back on the wagon again and again and again. And then one day, actually it was from a relationship. I was dating a woman who I introduced to that community and she she took to it like a fish to water. And because I was the big you know veteran meditator, I thought, well, I can't really be skipping meditations anymore because she actually is looking up to me and, uh, and I have, I'm holding that space, the masculine energy in the relationship. And that was the moment, probably about two years after I learned, that was the moment where I never missed a meditation again. She made you accountable. She made me accountable. You mentioned Vedic, actually, Vedic meditation there. What's the difference between Vedic and TM? I kind of see them both coming up and used interchangeably. Are they two words for the same thing? Yeah, so um, the guy who started Vedic meditation, Tom Knowles, he was a transcendental meditation teacher for decades. And he was, he was actually one of their top teachers for a period of time. And then from what I understand, a lot of the top teachers left the organization in the 80s and the 90s for various reasons. I think it was after the guru Maharishi had retired. And so, you know, you had these other, the underlings had kind of risen up and taken over the direction of the organization. And I think some people just felt like they, they weren't as inspired by the other teachers as they were by the, the main guru. And so they left. And my teacher was one of those teachers that left. But that's all he had been teaching for his whole life since he was 19 years old or 20 years old was transcendental meditation. So he knew it inside and out, through and through. And so naturally, he wanted to continue teaching it, which he did. And then he received a notice in the mail from the organization saying, hey, did you know that transcendental meditation is a trademark? It's it's proprietary name. You can't just use it if you're not going to be sending us back a portion of the money that you're bringing in from teaching people to meditate. And furthermore, we can't endorse you because, you know, we have ongoing trainings and whatnot. And if you're not going to be a part of the organization, then we can't certify that you are teaching what we are all agreeing to, uh, to teach and in the way that we're all agreeing to teach it. And so he said, okay, that's fine. I, I won't call it transcendental meditation anymore. And then he came up with the name Vedic meditation. So essentially, he's still teaching what he was teaching before, but legally, we are not allowed to refer to it as transcendental meditation. So same or similar practice, just a different brand. What does that practice look like? I know obviously you go into this in detail in, in all of the courses you do with people, but, but at a sort of top level... What does that practice look like on a daily basis? Is it a certain duration that someone is building up or committing to? Is it following a, a mantra? What does it look like? Well, on the surface, what's interesting about it, on the surface, it looks like probably the most expensive way to learn how to meditate. 
because you come to an information session and they're going to answer your questions. They're going to tell you a little bit about how the whole thing works. And they're going to say, okay, if you want to take this training, you have to fork over. And I think in Australia, it's a thousand dollars or $1,100 or something like that. In America, it could be anything from a thousand to maybe $2,000. But they also say that your investment is going to pay for your time with me, which is going to be four days, a couple of hours a day for four straight days. And then our ongoing relationship, which means that whenever you fall off the wagon, whenever you have questions at any point in the future, you can call me up, reach out to me, come back and sit in on the course again. And it's all complimentary. So in in a way, you're investing in a lifetime relationship for only a thousand bucks, which actually makes it the cheapest meditation on the market, but it's just the most expensive buy-in on the front side of the training as compared to people who may go to a studio or who may, you know, sit with a guided meditation teacher and pay that person $40 or whatever at each time, it adds up. And so that's one thing that makes it different. The other thing is that it's in person, it's one-to-one or, or one to a small group of people learning. And so you get a lot of personal attention from your teacher, which is also key when it comes to understanding the nuances of the practice. So the teacher gives the student a mantra, uh, which is based on age. And then they teach that student how to use the mantra in a way that doesn't require focus. Then they instruct the student to sit comfortably, usually with back support. That's key for the whole thing working. And then over the course of those three to four days, the student learns how to essentially settle their mind, settle their mind. So in TM, they call it transcending. Transcending means literally to go beyond something. And so the thing you're going beyond is your surface level mind, which is always telling you it's too loud in here. Um, I can't stop thinking about my to-do list. When is this going to be over? So that's your surface mind. And the whole idea with Vedic slash transcendental meditation is to go beyond that. So that's what it means to have a settled mind. You can actually get into a gap in between your thoughts where you're not aware of anything. And that's what makes the meditations feel like they're flying by. So people who practice this style of meditation don't have the same complaints that people who practice, I don't know, mindfulness or Vipassana tend to have, which is, when is this going to be over? It's too long. The Vedic meditator has the opposite problem. I can't come out. You know, the time would buy too quickly. (laughs) Can I go an extra 10 minutes? That kind of thing. And so once you really get the process and the technique down, it's better than any drug you can ever take. It, It takes you to places that are deeper than any place you can go to on your own without the meditation. And it's just a really beautiful thing to have in your life. What do you think is the the main kind of differentiating point that lends itself to being a practice that you want to stay in for longer as opposed to the other practices you mentioned? You can start to feel a little agitated. You know, is this going to end soon? Is it the mantra? What is, what is that main sort of difference in the practice? It's the overall approach. The normal approach with meditation is to focus your way into a state of being, like a samadhi or nirvana or a a deep state of awareness. But that negates the tendency of the mind, right? When you're focusing, you're actually 
you're inadvertently keeping your mind more surface than it would be otherwise. And it's only when your mind gets tired of focusing that you can then go into that state, which may happen after an hour or two. Kind of like what Elizabeth Gilbert described in Eat, Pray, Love. Like she had been in that monastery for many, many days and I think weeks. And then finally on her last day, she reached Turiya, which is the Indian term for that state of transcendence. Whereas with Vedic meditation, you have people reaching Turiya the first day and staying in Turiya for 10, 15 minutes, which makes it feel like two minutes. So I wouldn't say there's any one active ingredient. The mantra certainly helps, but also... You know, you could find a mantra online, but if no one is teaching you how to use it properly in order to invoke the state of consciousness that it's intended to invoke, you're not going to stumble upon it. I don't care who you are. I've never met anyone who on the first day of class knew what I was going to teach them because it's so different from how we normally think about about meditation. And, And look, it's not anything that's like, it's not Wizard of Oz type of different. It's just getting people to understand that they don't have to do anything in order to, for the meditation to work. It's, not, it's easier said than done. Do less, do least, do nothing. And so the whole process is getting people from a point of doing everything to doing less, to doing least, to doing nothing. And doing nothing doesn't, there's no point of reference in our Western society for doing nothing, right? Because even if we, say that we're not doing anything, we're usually scrolling through the phone or we're flipping through television channels or we're looking out the window or we're gathering our thoughts, but doing nothing means doing less than even that. And so that's what I, what I teach people how to do is, is, is use the mantra in a way that, that puts you into a state of doing nothing. I think you may have just planted a few seeds there with any of the listeners who, who perhaps haven't tried this yet. Let's come back to the book, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. We went on a bit of a tangent there, but I haven't spoken about meditation much on the show. So I, I think that's that, actually surprising because there's such a huge meditation community down there in uh, Bandai. I know, I know. Well, I've been waiting for you. <laughs> uh, tell me, 108, why 108? What does that number mean to you? Is it symbolic? And if you hand this book to a friend, what instructions do you give them? How is this book intended to be used? All right. So I'm going to tell you a little backstory first. So in June of 2016, soon after I got the book deal to work on the meditation book, Bliss More, I was very insecure about my writing ability, even though I had written another book prior to that. But it took me three years to write that book and you know more drafts and versions than I could even count. And so I only had six months to write Bliss More. That was the contract. You have six months. And so I wanted to, I wanted to practice my writing. So I decided, because I had been inspired by Seth Godin, who some people may know from the marketing world. And there was a Vedic meditation colleague of mine who I went to training with named Jeff Kober in Los Angeles. They had both been writing a daily email. Jeff was writing a daily Vedic meditation email about different Vedic principles. Seth obviously writes about marketing. And I had this idea, this inspiration, the still small voice was telling me to write a daily email about inspiration. 
So of course I dragged my feet for a very long time, (laughs) but I used the opportunity of writing this book as a chance to practice writing via the daily email, because I figure if I do that, if I send this out every day, then I have a deadline. So that gets rid of writer's block, having the deadline. And then B, because it's public, I have to really put thought into what I'm writing. So I can't just put out anything like I'm journaling or something. It's actually got to be legible and and meaningful. At least I wanted it to be. And so I started writing these daily doses of inspiration in June of 2016. And I thought my greatest fear was that I was going to run out of content after about three weeks and or I was going to wake up late some days and miss sending it out because my intention was to send it out at 6 a.m. Pacific time every day where I was living in Los Angeles. And you know what, man? Five years passed and never missed a day. And um, I did run out of content after three weeks, but I found that it would be midnight some nights and I'd be sitting on the couch trying to think of something to write for the next day. And I wouldn't put it in a category as writer's block because I felt like there were some ideas. I just, it wasn't, to me, it wasn't good enough, which is what Seth Godin talks about. So I would close my eyes. And after, as someone who's been meditating for you know, over a decade, if you sit down and close your eyes and do nothing, you're going to drift into this sort of meditative state. And during that state, after five or 10 minutes in that state, an idea would bubble up. And I think to myself, oh my God, that's it. That's what I'll write for tomorrow's email. And so that started happening more and more and more. And I just started trusting that the idea was going to come, even if I didn't have an idea when I sat down to the computer. So it's been over 1,900 emails at this point every day. And the 108, 108 is an auspicious number in the, in the spiritual community, the sacred number linked to sacred geometry and all kinds of stuff. That's a whole other podcast episode. But the reason I chose 108 was because it was familiar to people in that community. And number two, I didn't want it to be a 365 books that you read something every day because I wanted it to be more of a choose your own adventure experience. I wanted people just to flip it open and see what catches their eye with the thinking that whatever catches their eye is going to be something related to what they needed to read for that particular day. So I I thought 108 of the greatest hits would be a good start for that sort of experience. And the title, Knowing Where to Look kind of speaks to that in that the right message will surface to you on the right day. But also within your stories, many of the stories are based around you personally knowing where to look. Exactly. And and also literally their stories have illustrations and text designs. And then there's also some Easter eggs hidden within some of the stories and the illustrations. So it's it's knowing where to look you know, all over the place, inside and out. As I was going through it, I thought you and your team, you had some fun and there was some deep consideration given to the visual element that came with each story. 100%, yeah. I was me, it was my designer, designer for the publishing company and, and we had an illustrator. And we would meet a few times a week and just, we literally spent hours going over each and every one of these 108 doses and because uh, I was, you know, really, I'm a designer. That's my, my true passion as a designer. So I, I, I've been saying, telling people this is a design book with a little inspiration sprinkled throughout. 
friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you'll find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. Is there a, uh, a story in the book that perhaps resonated with people more so than others since it's been released and, and people have been sending you emails or contacting you on the socials? Is there a, a standout, so to speak? Um, well, the thing is, these stories have all already been market tested because I've sent them out to my list over the years. So I've gotten a huge response from these particular stories. So they kind of are all uh, hits and, and, and whatnot. And so I, I hear about a lot of different ones. I find that the ones that people post the most on social media are the more graphic ones. But I definitely have my personal favorites. One of them is the story about driving over the bridge. This is the one I told in the Ritual podcast, driving over the bridge in Vancouver and seeing that little note taped to the railing of the bridge. And we were running late to the airport and everyone was kind of on edge. And I happened to just glance over. We're in this thick traffic and I saw this little note. I couldn't, I don't have the best eyesight. So whenever I see something I can't read, I'll take out my phone and I'll take a photo of it so that I can enlarge it and see what it says. And so I couldn't see what it said at all. And I took the photo and then we just barely made the flight by the skin of our teeth. And I remember sitting at the gate and I was going through my camera roll and I found that photo and I enlarged it. And it said, the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. And it was this like scribbled note. It was written in a marker by hand and it was taped. So the whole note, even though it was like just the size of a little note card, it was all covered in tape. So I guess, you know, it rains a lot in Vancouver. So I don't know how long it had been there or who did it, but it just, it just really fascinated me that someone would put that note there at the top of the bridge. And I started wondering, who the note was intended for. Was it intended for someone in a car? Was it intended for somebody walking by? Was it for somebody who was potentially having a bad day and they were going to harm themselves? Because if you were going to try to commit suicide, that's the point on the bridge where you would have, you know, that was the highest point. So you would, you would potentially jump from that point. And I started writing uh, my next day's dose of inspiration about that experience and I just thought to myself, I think I ended that one saying that maybe the note was there for someone who writes the daily emails and they were supposed to see it and they were supposed to send it out to their list of thousands of people. And maybe it'll end up in a book one day. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure this person has no, had no idea that this was going to happen. Now we were talking about it on the biggest podcast in Australia and on Rich Roll's podcast and send this you know, it's in this best-selling book. And so it's just really, it, it just really fascinates me to see little gestures of kindness like that because you just never know how far and wide 
they are going to go when you take, because somebody really took their time to do that. Yeah, it's very, very sweet. There's a, there's another story in the book that sort of speaks to this theme of kindness that I really, really loved. That was It was the story about the wise woman and the precious stone. Yes, yes. What, what does that story mean to you? Shall I recount the story? Yeah, recount the story and then let's, let's have a debrief. Okay. Coming out of meditation, a wise woman noticed a precious stone protruding from the ground next to where she was sitting along the bank of a stream. She carefully dug it out, brushed away the soil, and placed the beautiful jewel in her bag. The next day, a hungry traveler approached and asked the woman for something to eat. As she reached into her bag for a piece of bread, he saw the shiny stone and knowing its value, he imagined how owning it could provide him with a lifetime of financial security. So he asked for the stone instead. And without hesitation, the woman handed the stone to him along with some bread. He left ecstatic over his good fortune and the knowledge that he now was financially secure. A few days later, the traveler returned, handing the stone back to the woman. He says, I've been thinking, although I know how valuable this stone is, I'm returning it to you in the hopes that you could give me something even more valuable. What would that be? The woman asked. Could you please teach me about what you have inside of you that allowed you to give me that stone? That's pretty special. That's, again, speaking to the importance of kindness. And he saw the value of that in her. Yeah, and, 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 and he recognized that she had embodied a state of consciousness. It's the same feeling I had when I first met my meditation teacher, right? I, I didn't realize I had been looking for this my entire life, but the reason why I quit my first and only real job was because I looked around the office. I didn't see anybody who seemed fulfilled, who seemed abundant, like they had an abundant state of consciousness. And it wasn't until I met my meditation teacher at 29 years old, which is about nine years later or eight years later, that I realized that's what attracted me to him and the teaching was he had this sense of, of abundant consciousness, right? And it was like, he didn't need my little money to teach me to meditate. And what he had was worth way more than any amount of money I could have paid him to show me how to cultivate that state inside. And so that's what made me come back the next day with my, you know, offerings, my fruit and my flowers, and my tuition, which was half of my net worth at the time was $400. <laughs> and I, I say at the end of the book, that was the best $400 I've ever spent in my entire life. Even though it was the most money proportionate to how much I had at the time, it was the best investment that I'd ever made because I was able to then cultivate that state of consciousness that allows me to have the generosity of spirit that I've been able to have nowadays. And that you see with a lot of long-term meditators. I think that's a beautiful place to, to end this one. We've come full circle. We could speak for, for hours around. There are so many beautiful stories in the book. Another one that I loved was around not thinking of, of days of the week as having the same seven on repeat, etc. Highly recommend that all of the listeners... Frog grab, day. Yes, yeah, maybe share that. We can't throw <laughs> that one out there without explaining. Well, it's interesting. You ask which ones are the most popular. 
it's interesting to see which ones different people resonate with the most because it's different for different people. You know, I guess based on where you are in your journey and what you have going on in your life. So, um, so it's always fun for me to see who's resonating with, with which one. Okay, so this one is called Frog Day. And it says, for a long time, I've had this fantasy of each day having its own name. So no more Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday after the first week. The next week would be something like Frog Day, Kind Day, Moon Day, like that, on and on indefinitely. I think this would inspire people to not wait until next Tuesday to start something that they want to do today because there would only be one Tuesday and only one King Day and one Butterfly Day in all of existence. And what if you wouldn't even know what day it was until you woke up? It would be a surprise. Or maybe everybody gets to name their own day. I'm still working out the details. My point is, let's view each day as special and treat waking up to each day as a tiny little celebration, a fresh start, because we only have an average of 30,000 of them in our lives. So let's use them wisely. Well said. Light Watkins, thank you so much for joining me. Please come back. Let's, uh, let's make sure we do this again. Thanks, bro. There we go, my friends. Gotta love that guy. If you enjoyed this exchange, I do highly recommend getting a copy of Light's new book, Knowing Where to Look. It's not like an ordinary book where you need to sit down and read it from front to back. You can just crack it open, any page, any time. I'm sure you'll find something that's interesting and speaks to you. With that, I'm going to leave this one here. Remember, the best way that you can support the show, should you feel compelled to, is to hit follow on your favorite podcast app. And if you're an Apple user like me, rate and review on the Apple podcast app. Each month, I sit down and read all of the reviews. Thank you so much to everyone who has left one so far. They definitely help more people find the show. Okay, I look forward to catching you again in just a few days' time. Until then, stay out of trouble and remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.